Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat shalom. Before we start, I just want to remind everyone that uh, this is a great thing. This is really an answer to prayer that we are, and part of our vision is to be uh, a, a, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual congregation. And so I want to encourage you to uh, introduce yourself and to meet someone new today, maybe someone new from a different background, maybe even someone new who doesn't share the same primary language that you share. You know, our people were strangers and aliens in Egypt for 400 years in a foreign land, and so we know what it's like to be a foreigner. Uh, we know what it's like to maybe to not to have English as your primary language. Uh, and so I want to encourage you to introduce yourself to somebody new and to help them out if there's a language barrier uh, and to stretch yourself uh, and to make everyone feel welcome because we are one mishpacha. We are one family together here in Eschayim. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, uh, in light of Marty Warshberger's amazing testimony last week, how many of you here last week from Marty's testimony? Amen. About how the Lord supernaturally protected him. He was shot point blank six times. Uh, in light of all that, I want to talk to you today about something that Marty mentioned throughout his talk last week, which was spiritual warfare. Uh, someone, someone told me I should, I should title this message, uh, The Devil Maybe Do It. <laughs> but I'm just going to entitle it Spiritual Warfare. <laughs> so turn with me, if you can, to Ephesians 6, uh, beginning in verse 10. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. And, and Paul says this uh, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Amen. The scriptures see this world as a battleground. You have not only human good and evil, natural good and evil, but also supernatural good and evil. So it's a major battleground, uh, as Marty Rushberger testified last week, uh, in both the seen and the unseen realms. And as you, and a Yeshua follower, a Yeshua follower realizes. Uh, and experiences this fight. Christianity, Messianic Judaism, is a fight. Life is a fight. Uh, Every square inch of reality is both claimed and counterclaimed by God and Satan. So there's this unseen battle going on every day for your very soul. And this is powerfully illustrated in one of my favorite uh, stories uh, by Albert Camus in this famous novel called La Chute, or in English, The Fall. Uh, the novel is about this man, uh, Jean-Baptiste Clement. Uh, Clements. Uh, he's a lawyer. Uh, he's quite prominent. He lives in Paris. He's got a good practice. He fancies himself a helper of people in need. Does a lot of what we call pro bono work for free. Uh, but he has a terrible experience one night. He's walking along a bridge over the River Seine, the Seine River, and he sees a woman looking over the edge of the bridge, staring into the river, obviously discouraged. And when he gets to the other side of the bridge, 
he hears her throw herself in. And he hears a couple of little cries and then silence. And he suddenly says to himself, should I jump in and rescue her? Or or run and get help? Or just walk away? So what does he do? He walks away. And this begins an incredible, tremendous internal struggle. Because he begins to ask himself, what happened? Uh, So first he says to himself, well, if I had jumped in, I could have drowned myself. Uh, It's dark, it's deep, it's dangerous. On the other hand, if I had ran and got someone, I could have been suspected myself. I'm a lawyer. I know how these things work. (laughs) But the main thing he realizes is that he didn't care enough to get involved. He says, who will ever know? Nobody saw me there. And this begins to create a great struggle within him. And most of the, or the rest of the book is about the fact that this man, who's respectable in almost every way by any normal societal standards, begins nonetheless to see that underneath, he says, underneath all my virtues lies duplicity. Underneath my righteous exterior, there's nothing but duplicity. He begins to realize almost everything good that he ever does for anybody else, he does it because he wants somebody to see him. And that who he is when people aren't watching him, who he is in the dark, is not someone he likes. If you want to know what your real character is like, ask yourself, oh, what am I, who am I in the dark when no one can see me? Well, Jean-Baptiste Clements, he didn't like what he saw, and he began to realize that if a man or a woman is to be measured by his or her commitments, he wasn't committed to anything. He wasn't committed to anything more than his own comfort. So he began to see his selfishness and his pride and his duplicity, and he begins to wrestle and struggle internally. He says, over the years, what's happened to me? What's going on? And one night, he, he's at the same river again, the same river. He's walking across on the same bridge, and he tries to fight this gnawing sense that there's something wrong with him. And so he kind of puffs himself up, and he says, look, I'm better than this person, on that person, on that person. And he lights a cigarette, and he says, I'm better than most. And just as he says that, he hears mocking laughter behind him. And he quickly swings around, and there's no one there. Now, why does Camus, the author, do this? What's he trying to say to us? What's he trying to get across when this man, Clements, begins to realize, he begins to now realize that there is a great unseen spiritual battle going on. This man begins, just for a moment, to have the veil ripped away. And where he thought he'd been in control all of his life, uh, that he was in control, and that he was living his own life the way he wanted to, he suddenly becomes aware there's a larger framework. There's a great, greater battle of good and evil. Uh, And by seeking to live his own life in a selfish way, he'd actually fallen under the influence of someone or something else that had him by the throat. He thought that he was in charge of his own life. Psychologists will tell you, uh, when something has a power over you, the largest part of its power is your denial that you're under its power, right? And the first step out from under its power is to admit that you're not in control, that you don't belong to yourself. The first step out of, from under this denial 
is to admit I'm not in complete control. In the same way the Bible says that people who say I belong to myself are self-deceived. The truth is every square inch of this universe is claimed or counterclaimed by God or the enemy. And either you're living for God or you're falling under the influence of supernatural evil. And therefore, Paul says that you've got to realize that we're in a spiritual war. And you've got to put on the full armor of God. We can no longer look at our problems or the world's problems and think that they're merely human. Ephesians 6.12, again. For you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. A Yeshua follower or someone who's finally given up the romantic, simplistic idea that when you look at a problem, anything, any problem in the world today, from poverty to violence to your own personal depression, that this only involves flesh and blood, that it's purely a human situation. Messianic believers have gotten rid of the idea that all our problems, uh, personal and societal, that they have manageable roots. Manageable roots, they don't. We've gotten rid of the idea that evil is only one-dimensional because it's multi-dimensional. We've gotten rid of the simplistic idea that education or federal government programs alone can solve our problems. So, for example, let's take an inner-city neighborhood. Uh, it's plagued with drugs and gangs uh, and, and, and prostitution and poverty and violence. What's the solution? Some would say it's a societal, social answer. It's a social answer. We've got to create better schools and, and, and decent jobs. Some would say it's a psychological answer. There's all these broken, dysfunctional families that need counseling, that need training and family dynamics. But there's a huge spiritual dimension as well. There's a supernatural evil that cannot be ignored. Uh, these people need the gospel. They need to be born again from above and need spiritual freedom from these demonic strongholds and bondages. And we've got to recognize that there's a complex interweaving of both supernatural and natural forces that together create tremendous bondages. And if you ignore or deny or leave out supernatural evil, you are going to be utterly defeated. So we've got to put on the full armor of God. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Why? Look at the next verse. It tells you why. Ephesians 6, 12. For or because our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So Paul is saying the first step in putting on the full armor of God is the first step is to assess your enemy. And he's going to give us here a description of the enemy. And Paul says, you'll be able to probably prepare for this battle unless you have an assessment of the enemy. So he gives us the assessment here about the powers and the principalities. He says there's three things this passage will tell us about Hasatan. We'll put that on the overhead. Three things I want us to see here. Number one, the devil is mighty, Paul says. Number two, the devil is wily. <laughs> Number three, the devil is vulnerable. He's mighty, he's wily, he's vulnerable. And if you forget any of these three things, you will be a target, an easy target. 
So first, the devil is mighty. Let's look at the titles that Paul uses here for Satan and his legions. Rulers, authorities, principalities and powers, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Now, every one of these phrases has been uh, analyzed and endlessly debated over the years. Uh, But here's what we know. These are supernatural entities, and they're not just some kind of impersonal forces. Uh, They're a type of personal spiritual evil. Uh, These are evil beings, supernatural beings, being described. The devil is personal. He's a ruler. And when he was cast out of heaven, he took with him entire divisions of angels who became fallen angels. But they all have military rank and hierarchy and probably territorial assignments as well. And there's large numbers of them. Ephesians 6.12 says these are spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Now, contrary to popular belief, this does not mean that there are demons in heaven. Uh, like kind of in the, the low rent district of heaven. <laughs> uh, hanging out in the slums of heaven. No, that's not what this verse means. Uh, but it does mean that demons are heavenly in their nature. Uh, they're fallen angels. Uh, when God created, when he, God created rational, sentient, volitional beings, he created two orders of them. Uh, the immaterial order, angels, and the material order, humans. And Luke ten eighteen, Yeshua says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The context here is that Yeshua had just sent out his disciples uh, to minister, and he gave them power to do supernatural acts and to cast out demons. So they come back, and we read this in Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy, and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And this triggers a kind of a memory in Yeshua. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Yeshua himself reaffirms the existence of Satan and supernatural evil. But we need not fear as Messianic believers because Yeshua then says in Luke 10, 19 to the disciples, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now when Yeshua says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, what he means is that Satan was an angel 2 Peter 2, verse 4, we read this. God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And in Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12, we read this about Satan. How you've fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the mountain of the north. I'll ascend above the the tops of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you're brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And so the sin of Satan was pride and self-centeredness and rebellion. He wanted to be number one, uh, to ascend above the stars of God. So Paul's reference to spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms means these are beings of angelic order. Uh, These are beings of an ancient order. These are beings of of a supernatural power who are pure evil and oppose God and all the things of God 
and especially opposed two groups of people, uh, Messianic believers, Christians and Messianic Jews, uh, and the Jewish people as a whole, since these are both special people in God's eyes. And given that these fallen angels' supernatural powers, we cannot defeat them in our own strength. It would be like going against a tank uh, with a pop gun. In fact, their strength is so great that in certain places, the Lord calls them the rulers of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, we're told Satan's the god of this world. In Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. And in John 8, Yeshua is uh, debating with the Pharisees, and, and the Pharisees boast that, that God is our father. And Yeshua says this to them in John 8, uh, beginning in verse 42. He replies this way, If God were your father, you'd love me, for I came from God. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yeshua was saying that ultimately there are only two kingdoms. And you belong either to one or the other. Jean-Baptiste Clements in Camus' The Fall, he thought he was living his own life. But when you decide to live your own life, to be your own Savior and Lord, in essence, to say, I will ascend, when you say, I want to be my own God, nobody has the right to tell me what to do. No one has the right to bind my conscience. Nobody has the right to tell me what's right and what's wrong. No one has the right to impose their truth on me. When you say or think this, you're basically saying, I am the most high. My conscience is the most high. My experience is the most high. My desires are the most high. I don't submit to anyone. I decide what I want to do and who I want to be. No one, not even God, tells me what to do. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. When you act like that, when you have that heart of rebellion... When you say, well, I'll be like the Most High, you're actually, ironically, submitting to and giving yourself to the influence and the dominion of Satan's kingdom. You think you're setting up your own kingdom, but in reality, you're just becoming a servant and a slave of Satan. You're being controlled by the kingdom of darkness. When the scriptures talk about the might of Satan, it's not just saying that he's a powerful angelic creature uh, with all these legions of angels under him, all these fallen angels, which he is, but also the scriptures are saying that at some level, he is the ruler of this world. At some level, he is the prince of the power of the air. And you've got to recognize that when you decide to lead your own life, you're actually enlisting in his kingdom. That's what Jean-Baptiste Clements uh, begins to realize when he heard this mocking laugh behind him when nobody was there. It was the rulers of the kingdom of darkness laughing at him. In Ephesians 6, Paul refers to the powers of this dark world. Uh, the word in Greek here for the powers of this dark world is kosmokraton. I love that word. Uh, ruling powers, uh, the gods of this cosmos, the gods of this world. Uh, and in the past... People believed in all sorts of gods, right? There was a water god and a tree god, a mountain god, a farm god. So, for example, when you wanted a good crop, you'd sacrifice to that god. 
You're going to cut down some trees. You made sure to sacrifice to the tree god to appease him so he wouldn't be angry at you. But we've moved far beyond that, right? Not really. It's interesting that polytheism and animism, the idea that there are gods everywhere, well, we have something very similar here in Ephesians six twelve, because Paul says this present age is filled with the cosmocraton, with the world rulers of darkness. There, Paul is saying there are lots and lots of gods. In fact, it's the nature of the demonic to try to set up these little gods and to try to get you to worship them. Let's say you're a secular person. Uh, you don't believe in the supernatural. Uh, then the question is, what is the functional master of your heart? What is the title to the function, your functional loyalty and devotion and passion? What is the deed to your heart's trust? What is it that you really trust in? What is it that you're really living for? Uh, and that means, what is it that you really worship? The reason you've got certain drives, the reason why there are certain things in your life you can't seem to stop, the reason you've got these powerful urges to do this or to do that, what is that? Now stop thinking about addiction for a moment. Stop thinking in in psychological terms. I'll tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says it's worship. We're fundamentally worshiping beings before anything else. We've got to worship something. And the nature of the demonic powers in this world is such that there are demons everywhere who are trying to get you to worship their little gods. There is a money god. There is a sex god. Where do you think the Greeks and the Romans got all these ideas from for all these gods? And some of you know that you are bound under the power of some of these gods. For example, you can't break that porn habit. Why not? Why are they so seemingly powerful? It's worship. It's worship. You're worshiping these gods. Somehow you've decided at some deep level, if only I could have this kind of pleasure, will my life be meaningful? What is that? That's worship. That's the cosmic craton, the demonic world powers, having a field day with you. So in a sense, the animists and the polytheists are properly sensing something. All over the place, there are little gods, little tin gods. They're demons. And they're doing everything they can do to get you into their kingdom of darkness. And they do this by getting you to worship anything other than Yeshua the Messiah, the Lord God. Anything other than Yeshua that becomes your functional master... Anything that holds the title deed to your heart, what you really worship, has succeeded in enlisting you within their dark hierarchy of principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's a large part of the reason why we get so stuck in our addictions and besetting sins and ungodly habit patterns. So, for example... What a lot of people today in the psychological world call codependency, it's really a form of co-idolatry. So here's a man. He's addicted to pleasure. He's got to feel good to have meaning in life. It's an idol. So the way he deals with his problems is that he, he medicates himself. He drinks. He does drugs. He takes opioids. Uh, he's addicted. 
Now, here's a woman, his wife, and she needs to be needed. She needs to rescue people. That's her idol. Somewhere, someplace, she's learned that if she's really a good woman, if she's really long-suffering, she never raises her voice, she never complains, she only serves, she stays with her man no matter what, she never challenges him, she's always able to say to herself, I'm a good wife, I put up with hell. (laughs) What is that? That is an idol. That's saying, my ability to rescue others is what makes me feel like I'm a meaningful person. That's how I can look myself in the mirror and feel good about myself. Codependency, hear me well, therefore, is where you have two people whose idols reinforce each other. It's a massively destructive feedback loop. And why is it that these things are so incredibly hard to break? Why is it so hard to overcome? One of the reasons is because we're not just dealing with flesh and blood. It's not just a psychological problem. Because evil has multidimensional roots. There's supernatural wickedness. There are forces of supernatural evil. They're trying to get you to worship something other than Yeshua. Trying to get you to make your righteousness something other than Yeshua. Trying to get you to trust in something other than Yeshua. And the minute you buy in, you no longer belong to yourself. Whether you realize it or not, you're under the authorities of darkness. So number one, Satan is mighty. So we need to be humble and realize that we cannot deal with the roots of our problems unless we call upon Yeshua. But he is our ever-present help in time of need. We need our spiritual armor. We need the full armor of God. And it's no good, by the way, just to exchange one idol for another. You can have an obvious idol, let's say, sexaholism, right? Uh, pornography, fornication, adultery. You can, then have, you can also have more subtle idol, like um, workaholism. When people find out your sexual addictions, it's a scandal. But when they find out you're a workaholic, they just want to hire you. (laughs) But the point is, they're both idols. And they'll both ultimately destroy you. Because in both cases, you're under the authority of the cosmocraton, the world powers, the world powers of wickedness. So yes, there really are gods out there. Divine beings. Demons. So number one, Satan is mighty. Number two, Satan is wily. Now, nobody uses this word anymore, except maybe wily coyote. <laughs> but uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, Paul says, We're not ignorant of Satan's wiles, his devices, his schemes. Ephesians six eleven, Paul says, Take your stand against the devil's wiles, or his schemes. The word here in Greek is methodista, or methodia, We get a word methodical or methods from this. The idea here is that Satan is not just some kind of impulsive person. He's not just impulsive. He's been around for a long time, before before the creation of this earth. He's been perfecting his methods and his strategies and his schemes and devices all this time. And he's very patient. He's willing to slowly work for years and years and years in your life to make sure that his methods and his strategies are set up 
and his traps are set so they eventually snap shut upon their victim. Now, what are these strategies of Satan's according to the scriptures? Uh, there's one basic one that I'm going to look at today and focus on today. That's all we have time for. But the number one basic strategy is this. The Greek word for devil, diabolos, means deceiver. And the thing that Yeshua often most says about Satan is what? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. So he can subtly influence and oppress and, and tempt you. Yes, somebody can literally be demon-possessed, uh, but, but that's only, only the most spectacular form of demonization uh, and, and the least common. The main way Satan exercises his power is not by trying to scare you. C.S. Lewis points out there are two equal but opposite and equally unhealthy extremes in our attitude towards the demonic. Both are dangerous errors. One is not to believe in Satan at all. The other is to have an unhealthy and exaggerated interest in him. Satan's like one of these uh, certain kinds of lizards you find in the desert. Uh, the first thing this lizard does if it meets you is to puff itself up uh, to look horribly scary and intimidating. And if that doesn't work, you deem, the uh, lizard immediately rolls over and plays dead. <laughs> in the same way, there's two main ways that Satan uses to deal with us. One is to make you think he has more power than he does. The other is to make you think he has less power than he does. And in our Western secular society today, he usually takes the latter approach. He tries to give you the impression that he has less power than he really does. The real power of Satan is the lie. He tries to insert false ideas in your mind. That's why, for example, when Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied about how much uh, they sold their land for in the book of Acts, and therefore how much money they were, they were giving to the Messianic congregation, Acts 5, verse 3, what does Peter say? He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? And then we, then we read this in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age, Satan... 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. he's blinded the minds of the unbeliever so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Messiah, who is the image of God. And in Matthew 4, when Satan comes to tempt Yeshua three times in the wilderness, what does he do? He lies to him. He says, God will do this, or God will do that, or he won't do this. Every time twisting the scriptures just a little bit. How does he come to Adam and Eve in the garden? He questions God's word, right? He says, has God really said? Look at Genesis 3, verse 1. Has God really said you shall eat from no tree in the garden? And, of course, Satan is twisting God's word. He exaggerates what God said to make God look bad. And to rouse what? To rouse self-pity in Adam and Eve. The very first thing Satan did to destroy mankind was to get them to feel sorry for themselves. In essence, Satan says... Boy, that God is a great bully. Uh, here's this great garden, and God's telling you all the things you can't do in it. He's making Adam and Eve question God's motives. And he's already inserted a lie by intimating that God has forbidden all the trees in the garden. Because it's the power of Satan to lie. And so we need to guard our minds. We need to be willing to change certain beliefs we have. They're the product of having believed a lie. 
So, for example, let's say you've had a bad childhood. Your parents said some terrible things to you growing up. Now you're having all these troubles with this or that in your life, and you say, oh, it's not my fault. Uh, I'm a wreck because of my parents. No. That's all in the past. What you've got, uh, that, what, what's got you down now is the lie. Lies that have come, you've allowed to come into your life and remain in your life. Your life is being distorted by lies. Lies based on past bad experiences that you now universalize. Like, all men are louses. Uh, all women want control. Those are lies you've bought into. And they now have power over you, whether you realize it or not. Maybe you're under control of the lie that says, I'm not lovable. Maybe that's the lie you bought into. Nobody could ever love me. That's a lie that Satan has implanted in your mind. Don't blame your parents or a bad marriage or a failed relationship. Today, it's you and the lie. You've got to be wise to Satan's devices. And until you see the lie for what it is and root it out and replace it with the truth, you're not going to have victory in this area. You've got to replace the lie with God's truth. Until you do that, you remain under the control of the lie and therefore under the control of the cosmic kraton, the world powers of this age. Satan is the master of the lie. He injects distorted perceptions of yourself, of the world, and of God into your heart. And that's why Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. He says, God, God may grant that they repent and see what? See the truth. And therefore escape the snare of the devil. To defeat the devil and his lies, Paul says you've got to saturate your heart and your mind with the truth, which is the word of God. And then in Ephesians 4, 26, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a place to stand. And in 1 Timothy 3.6, Paul says, Don't let a recent convert become an overseer. Why? He may become puffed up in pride and fall under the snare of the devil. It's interesting what makes people bitter. I remember years ago I was counseling this husband and wife, uh, many years ago. They had a son who was going bad. Uh, they were very upset about it. They both admitted they had not spent enough time with their son while he was growing up. And the husband and wife, they were mad at each other, but they realized that they were both guilty. The husband forgave the wife. He went on in the Lord. But she could not get rid of her bitterness. Why was this husband able to let it go, but the wife could not get rid of her anger and her resentment? Especially since the husband was not as spiritually mature and as godly as the wife in general. What was the matter? It came down to a question of different idols in their life. For the husband, his functional master was his job. As long as he was doing well in his job, he was content. But for the wife, her functional master was her mothering. And the idea that her children would do well. The husband was unhappy that his son wasn't doing well, but he wasn't destroyed because he wasn't putting all the eggs of his self-image in how well his son was doing. But the wife did put all her eggs in that basket. She bought into the lie. And the lie was, if your son does not turn out very good, if he doesn't turn out to be the way you, that he should be, you are worthless. You are a failure as a mother. 
And as a person, as a Yeshua follower, you are nothing. That was the lie that she bought into deep down. The lie of the enemy. This is his main device to make us believe a lie. And it was keeping her a slave to the prince of the power of the air. And the only way for her to overcome her bitterness in her heart and to root out the foothold that Satan had gained in her life was to replace the lie with the truth. The truth of God's word and who she was in Messiah, regardless of how her son turned out. I remember years ago sharing with her the, the famous parable of the unmerciful servant, uh, Matthew 18. Well, the servant, you remember, who wouldn't recognize, uh, wouldn't forgive his, his fellow servant a very small debt, uh, even though the king had forgiven him this huge debt. And she realized she had to truly forgive her husband. Even as the king of kings had mercy on her, she needed to have mercy on her husband, her fellow bondservant in Messiah. And then she also realized, I don't need my son to be perfect. Yeshua loves me regardless. And if my son doesn't turn out the way I want, yes, that's a tragedy, but it's not the end of the world. And by embracing the truth and internalizing it deep within her soul, she was able finally to overcome the lies of the enemy. So number one, the devil is powerful. This in the overhead, please. Uh, number two, uh, he, he's wily on the overhead. Uh, but number three, he's also vulnerable. It says in Colossians uh, 2.15, Colossians 2.15, that Yeshua has disarmed uh, the powers and the authorities. Colossians 2.15, next slide, please. Uh, that Yeshua has disarmed the powers and the authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them, triumphing over them by the cross. And, and in Mark 3, Yeshua says, I came to bind the strong man and plunder his house, to break his power. Satan is a defeated foe. He can't make you do anything unless you let him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That's time. I want you to claim the truth of this verse and to stand on it. The truth of God's word will enable you to overcome the enemy. I'm going to close with three aspects of standing on the truth of God's word uh, in this spiritual war. First is to flee from evil. Look at 1 Timothy 6.11. Paul says, but you, man of God, Timothy, flee from evil. Flee evil, which pulls you away from the Lord. Paul says, run from sin. Run from quarreling and slander and malicious talk. Run from envy and jealousy. Run from resentment and strife. Run from selfishness and greed. Run from lust and pride. Run from sinful actions. Run from every temptation to sin. Paul says, flee. Don't flirt with sin. Flee from sin. Run from sinful desires. Whenever you have a desire that pulls you away from God, run. And in this fight of faith, we're not just running from sinful actions or desires. Ultimately, you're running from sinful thoughts. We're commanded to take every thought captive to Messiah. 
2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with aren't the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Messiah. All our struggles with sin are at their core struggles with our thoughts and our beliefs. Think about it. Why do you lie? You lie because you believe that doing so would be better for you. You lie because you don't believe God who says it's better to tell the truth. Why do you give in to sexual impurity? It's because you don't believe that purity is good and best for you. You think you, have more, you will have more delight in impurity than you will have with God. And so the way you fight this is by believing God and agreeing that he knows what he's talking about. Think about your struggles you have with worry uh, or despair or doubt. All of, these, all of these ultimately are struggles to believe God. Where does worry come from? Worry comes from a struggle to believe that God will really take care of you. Where does the despair come from? Despair comes from when you struggle to believe that God is good. Where does doubt come from? Doubt comes from the struggle to believe that God is true. So in this fight of faith, flee sinful thoughts. Flee everything and anything that will lead you not to believe God. And in this fight of faith, your primary offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So for example... Let's, let's use the sword of the Spirit, okay? You're struggling to believe God is with you, or you're wrestling with loneliness, or not sensing his presence. How do you fight that fight of faith with the sword of the Spirit? Well, you fight it with Matthew 28, 20, where Yeshua says, Surely I am with you, always, even to the end of the age. So when you don't feel his presence, you stand on God's word that he is nonetheless with you. You fight the fight of faith with the weapon of the word. Things are crashing down around you. Where is God? Uh, Isn't he in control? Doesn't he even care? How do you fight these fiery darts of the evil one? You fight with Psalm 31, verse 14. I trust in you, Lord. You're my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies who pursue me. You fight with Job 42, verse 2. I know that you, Lord, can do all things No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You fight with Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things God works for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. You fight with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and you stand on and you trust in his word. So number one, you flee the evil that pulls you away from God by using the word of God to defeat the lies of the enemy. Number two, you don't just run from something, you also run to something. You flee from evil, and you pursue goodness that draws you to God. So look at 1 Timothy 6.11. Paul says, but you, man of God, flee from all this, and then pursue righteousness. These six things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Pursue. Run after these things. He says, first, run after righteousness, which means righteous thinking, righteous living, right thinking, right living. Run after that. 
And it says run after godliness, uh, godly belief and behavior, God-centered belief, God-centered behavior, a life that revolves around God. Saturate your mind, your heart, your life with God first and foremost. This is how you do spiritual warfare and fight the fight of faith. You saturate yourself with Yeshua the Messiah and his godliness and righteousness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness. And he says, pursue faith. Pursue deeper trust in Yeshua. You fight the fate of faith, you fight the, the fight of faith by running after deeper faith in the Lord. Amidst the struggle and the spiritual warfare, you actually grow in faith. Indeed, if you do this, you'll be surprised to see them at the most difficult times in your life are actually the very times when your faith grows the most. So in the midst of your struggle, ask the Lord for deeper faith. Pursue deeper faith, deeper trust in God. And run after greater affection for God. Pursue praise and worship of the Lord. Pursue love towards the Lord. Nurture your heart's love toward the Lord. And not just toward the Lord. Pursue love towards your husband. Pursue love towards your wife. Love towards your children. Love towards your parents. Towards your neighbor and your co-workers. And yes, even towards your enemy. And then finally, number three. Fight the good fight to be faithful to the gospel for the sake of the lost. For the sake of those who are perishing and dying in their sin, separated from God and on the road to eternal hell. To silence you is the goal of the enemy. And the one thing that you are called and empowered and commissioned to do is to fight against that silence. There are people you work with who are headed towards eternal judgment. There are people in your neighborhood held captive to the enemy. There are kids in your classroom and on your campus on the road to everlasting destruction in hell. The adversary is waging a war. And one of his chief aims is to keep you silent from sharing the gospel. So fight the good fight against fear, Uh, and nervousness, fight against the desire for man's approval and applause and acceptance, fight against the desire for reputation in the eyes of this world, fight against pride, fight against all the fiery darts of the enemy that would silence you against sharing the good news of Yeshua and him crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. Think about it. The moment you begin to share the gospel with a non-believer, At that very moment, there's a spiritual battle raging. But greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. The Holy Spirit within you will empower you for this battle. So don't shrink back. You're not alone. Fight the good fight for the sake of the lost, for their souls, that they may be saved. Fight to be faithful to the gospel. Do not hide your light under a bushel. Spread the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Share the good news of Messiah and him crucified. Fight against the temptation of a self-centered and self-satisfied, comfortable, namby-pamby Yeshua faith that hoards the gospel and does not freely share it with others who are perishing and heading towards hell. Rather, be faithful 
for the gospel. And finally, know Yeshua is with you. Know he's with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Know that the outcome of this war is already won. Yeshua has taken your sin upon himself and paid the price. He's risen from the grave. He's conquered sin and death and hell and Satan. Satan is a defeated foe. So now we fight this war from a place of victory. And that changes everything. You're battling a defeated foe. So flee evil. Pursue godliness. Be strengthened in worship. Take every thought captive and preach the gospel. And that's the good fight worth fighting. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. I'd like the music team to come on up, please. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today for this truth. The truth that your word defeats the lies of the enemy. And we acknowledge that Satan's number one weapon is the lie that whispers into our minds. Help us not to be ignorant of his wiles, of his devices, of his schemes. Thank you, Yeshua, that by your cross and by your resurrection, you have utterly defeated the cosmic kraton, the powers of this world. You overcome the principalities and the powers and the rulers of darkness of this present age. You overcome all the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And you've made an open show, an open spe- a public spectacle of them. So, Lord Yeshua, help us today to put on the full armor of God that you've given us, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and most of all, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Having put on this full armor, we can stand in you, Yeshua, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Hallelujah. So, Lord, help us today to take every thought captive to you, to overcome the lies and the deceptions and the wiles and schemes of the, of the enemy, overcome them with the truth of your word. Help us to flee from evil, to flee from sinful desires and sinful thoughts, to speak the word of God to ourselves, to bathe our spirit in your praise and worship we're just about to do now again. And not only to flee evil, but to run to you, Lord Yeshua, to pursue you and your righteousness, your right godly living, your right godly behavior, and to be faithful to preach the gospel to the lost, to snatch them from the jaws of hell. Help us, Lord, to fight the good fight of faith. We pray this all in your name, Bashem Yeshua. Amen. Amen.